Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. So when I say the word private investigator, what probably comes to mind is a 1950s image of a guy in a trench coat with a cigarette, a long telephoto lens camera, one of those weird bowler hats, who is taking a picture of someone who is cheating on their significant other or doing something kind of shady like that. Well, that is not the case today. As technology has changed everything, it has also changed the industry of being a PI. And my guest today uh, is Tyler Maroney. He is a partner at a company called QRI that works with lots of different companies. They do uh, criminal cases. uh, They do investigations into boards and uh, lots of crazy stories, which we're going to get into. Uh, Where they're really kind of have become famous recently is QRI was involved in the Amazon documentary around uh, Free Meek, which was the Meek Mill story of how he was thrown in jail for the craziest thing imaginable, which we're going to talk about. And of course, for being involved in the HBO special, which looked into uh, Adnan Syed and the Serial podcast and went even deeper into the story behind uh, one of the most famous murder cases, I think, in the last few years, thanks, of course, to that podcast. I'm really excited to have Tyler on. He's going to tell me all the neat tricks that they do, what what it's like being a PI today, and he's going to give me his viewpoint on, on some of the most famous cases we've heard about in recent history. So without further ado. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us today. This is this is beyond exciting. I have more questions than we'll have time for, but we'll we'll jump right in. Is is it when you're when you're at like a dinner party and you're sitting next to someone, you're like, I'm a private investigator. Is it just like you're like the star of the show and they have a thousand questions for you? Well, I like to think that I am. It's interesting. It depends <laughs> on who I'm sitting next to. If I don't want to have a conversation with somebody, I'll tell them I'm a consultant and that will immediately mm. end the conversation. But if it if it's someone that I want to talk to, I will say private detective, but I often add the word corporate to that um, Mm. because one of my goals is to try to separate the work that we do from the stereotype of the gumshoe who, you know, is hired for matrimonial matters and the like. Yeah. So what, so the, the, it's, is what you do and tell, and if you can explain a little bit about what you do just for the audience so they know, they understand, but is what you do drastically different from that old stereotype of the of the private detective you know catching the 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 husband cheating on his wife with a you know telephoto lens in a in a parked car filled with smoke <laughs> from years ago like and and is what you do new or is it just is it just something that's becoming more well known i would say it's very different from the stereotype of the the private eye who's a surveillance specialist because we don't do much surveillance um that that is you know, sitting in parked cars with telephoto lenses, mostly because we actually try to avoid matrimonial work. Um, Mm. You can never really win in a case like that because there's so much emotion flowing through it. Also because it doesn't really make us comfortable spending our days finding evidence of infidelity. Um, Not that there's anything wrong with that work. There is a whole cottage industry that's focused on that. In fact, in New York in the 1970s, the private investigations industry flourished because to get a divorce, you had to prove infidelity. Now you can just divorce someone for any reason you want. Wow. Um, so there was a there was actually a business hook in the law for PIs. But the, the reason that I use the word corporate is that it's not that all of our clients are corporations. It's more that the work we do seeks to reveal larger truths and to do very complicated, sophisticated work and I say that modestly because, you know, we struggle through every case, but, you know, uncovering, say, a money laundering scheme that, you know, has touched on six different countries or tracking um, smuggled counterfeit goods from Vietnam to the street corners of Queens, 
um, or chasing down the assets of, of somebody um, who has been victimized by, uh, by a competitor. Um, and and these, are, these are examples of cases that take a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of sophistication. And by sophistication, I mean using different tools, right? So somebody who is an expert in finding uh, who is behind anonymous postings online, um, somebody who is an expert at tracking down witnesses and interviewing them, somebody who comes out of law enforcement, which I don't, but some of our people do, who have that mindset of how do you think about making a case that could be referred to law enforcement. So it, it, there are a lot of moving parts in the projects that we take on, and that's by design. So do you? So how many people work for the company that you're, you're, you're at? So our company is called Quest Research and Investigations, QRI. We have 10 employees full-time. But we have a, a pretty regular rotating cast of contractors who have real specialty, um, which I'll go into a minute in a minute. But the, the 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 team we've assembled is that mix of talents. In many ways, we're refugees from other industries. I was a journalist. Uh, the co-founder of our firm came out of the labor movement. We have uh, a woman who was an academic, had been a dean at Columbia. We have a, a savvy technologist. We have a woman who'd been an actress, actually, so she jokes that she's used to rejection, which is why she doesn't mind <laughs> banging on doors and, and calling strangers. Um, and we have someone who had been a journalist for much longer than I had, uh, a man who was the founding editor of The, the Independent, the UK's uh, US operations. This is, this is an example of somebody who's spent his entire life um, telling stories and finding information. So you put all those people together and you have an interesting team. So do you do you employ certain tactics? I mean, are, are there, you know, if, if I um, if I were in imagining this as like a TV show, I would imagine that you have like special gadgets and you'll like sometimes knock on someone's door and pretend that you're the neighbor or whatever. Do you do all those things or are you just straight up by the book, no, no messing around? Like, what are some of the tactics you use to actually do your investigations? And then I'd love to get into some examples. Well, sure. I'm happy to give you some examples through through war stories. But, you know, at its core, our work is not that different from an investigative journalist um, in that we find documents and people, which is where information lives. But having said that, we, we have had cases where we have used um, – you know, recording devices, for example. But that's an, a whole other conversation to have because, um, as you may know well, as someone who's in the audio recording business, every state has a different rule for yep. who can and cannot be recorded. There are one-party consent states and two-party consent states. So um, we can get into this later. But those are the types of regulations that, not to sound too much like a Boy Scout, um, that we have to abide by because we're often hired by lawyers who want to use the information we find as evidence in a court proceeding. And so if we're breaking the rules, then they're breaking the rules. So that's why we're so careful. All right. So take us through. I, I, so the thing that I find so fascinating uh, as of late about your job is that you've been the subject of a couple of documentaries, um, the Adnan Syed case, the Meek Mill case. Uh, but before we get to those, because uh, we all have our viewpoints on those, and I'd love to hear uh, you know all the stories about it, I want to hear what's the what's your like your favorite war story or the favorite story of of a a case that you investigated or an early case or something like that. One of the first cases um, I did for um, a large corporation, which was back in the kind of early aughts, was to try to figure out why so much money had gone missing on a number of cruise ships around the world. And what this meant was we there were 15 or 20 of us private investigators who were um, flown out and, and we had to quickly jump onto cruise ships along with um, some forensic accountants. And we really didn't know what was going on. And what we had to do was very creatively and quietly interview people and go through the documentation from from each ship, which operates effectively like its own hotel um, out in international waters. And that was a wonderful learning experience for me because it was the first time that I had been thrown into um, quite literally deep waters with a team of yeah. people. Um, you know, and these cruise ships have, you know, thousands of employees and and, and many more thousands of, of, um, of people who are on the ships. And what we ended up doing was cultivating some, some sources, some people who we 
had heard were not fans of the management of the ship. And that's always a good tactic to answer one of your questions about tactics is to find people with a motive to speak. There's nothing particularly new about that, something you do for a living as well. Yeah, that's um, been my journalism career. Ex- exactly. And, you know, that's that's a tried and true tactic that um, I think will always be useful. And I, I actually encourage people, whether you're an investigative journalist or an investigator, not to forget that because I think that there's so much talk of big data and of data scraping. And I think sometimes we get the sense that, you know, computers will be able to do everything for us. But in both the case we did investigating um, the Adnan Syed case for HBO and then the Meek Mill case, um, which also um, was made into a documentary, so much of the useful information we got was a result of simply showing up at people's houses or their places of work and asking them to speak with us. So it doesn't sound very sexy, but many of those people were very reluctant to speak so one of the key tactics is finding ways to persuade reluctant witnesses to talk. So what happened on the cruise trip? Who was, who was taking the money? Well, what we had discovered was that there was a pretty simple scam of the people who were responsible for paying out the money um, of simply creating ghost employees and making it seem like they were paying them, but then just pocketing the cash itself. And... Um, it was relatively crude, but once we figured out how it worked on one ship, we were able to figure out how it happened on many of the others. And did did someone come up with the idea and tell the other people on the other cruise ships to do it too, or was it was it kind of like they all came up with this ingenious plan at the same time? No, it's the former, exactly. It was our suspicion that once someone figured out this loophole, then that spread like wildfire because different wow. employees would be reassigned to different ships. And so when you... You know, with a case like this, do you end up? Do you do you call the authorities and people get arrested? Do you do you just do they just get fired? Do they have to give back the money? How does that work? So that case fell into, as many of our cases do, what we call essentially an internal investigation. By which I mean, we're hired by a company or a person or an organization to look into some kind of wrongdoing within their own ranks, and when that happens. As opposed to, say, if that company or person or organization called the FBI or the police, um, they can control much of the investigation, by which I mean, it, let's say we were to find out that there was a massive fraud going in, going on within a, a, a Wall Street bank. Um, we do not have the power to independently report that information to, say, the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, or the DA's office. It is our client's responsibility to do what they see fit with that. I mean, we've had a number of cases where the opposite um, happened with what we thought our client would do with our with our information. And I can give you an example of that. Um, yeah, great. We once had a case where we were hired by the board of a company to investigate expense account fraud by one of its other board members. And we p- pretty quickly found out that this board member was involved in um, using a corporate card for um, going to strip clubs and, and even prostitutes. And it was pretty clear wow. what was happening. And we went back to the board, presented this information. Actually, let me back up a second. The first thing we did was we we essentially um, presented the person himself with our findings because we wanted his reaction. Just real quick before you – so did you yeah. – follow him or were you just looking at the data? So in this case, we were looking at the data and let me back up just for a second because we were given the data by the company. So we had access to his expense account records, to his personnel file. Um, We could see where he had charged various expenses. Um, There was no surveillance in this. How did you figure out the prostitute part? Well, because we were able to look at the places that he had gone um, and many of those locations, we actually consulted sources of ours, former law enforcement officials and others who had heard of them. They were not restaurants or hotels um, and got enough evidence to suggest that they were, um, you know, at the very best strip clubs. And we presented wow. him with this information and he looked at us and said, OK, you got me. Now, let me tell you what everyone else at my company is doing. And what he decided to do was basically throw everyone else under the bus because I, I suspect he was thinking, if I'm going down, they're going down with me. 
Mm-hmm. So this was an opportunity we had, which was quite new. And we went back to our client and said, uh, so check out what we found. He confessed, but he also pointed the finger at all these other people. And they said, thank you very much. Please send us your invoice. And that was the end of the case. So <laughs> what happened? I don't really know what happened. I mean, that's you, you ask an excellent question about what happens with this information. There are many scenarios in which we don't know, in which we are not told um, what happens. So is that frustrate i mean like i know as a reporter i've you know as i've worked on stories and i and you know you see reporters that work on these kind of big trump tax stories for a year and a half and mm-hmm. kind of it's it's a to to quote my old uh mentor at the new york times david carr it's like a it's it's an olympic diver landing in a swimming pool like it doesn't make a sound and it's that frustrating when you spend all this time going after something that you've been hired to do and there's like kind of no result Yes, although, and here's how it's a bit different from being a journalist, which I was for a decade, is that if I was a journalist and I was hired to investigate corruption in City Hall, if I, let's say I'm on the Metro desk, and I don't find it, I don't write the story. But mm-hmm. as a private eye, if I'm hired by a client to investigate evidence that, let's say, the mayor is on the takes from some private corporation which is trying to bribe its way into a government contract, and I don't find that information, I still write the story and that I write a report that describes what I did and how I did it, um, which which gets sent to my client. And and I, I'm, I'm proud to say that there are countless times where clients have said, well, you worked really hard. Uh, you didn't find anything, but I can tell that you did everything you could to get the answer to this question. You, you not only turned over every rock you could find, but you found new rocks and then turned those rocks over. And so the process by which we do the work is often just as important in many cases as the results because we want to prove to our clients that we take the work seriously. So you, um, you the other the other two big cases that you've worked on, I'm sure you've, you've got other stories and I'd love to hear more of them, but uh, I want to jump to one. So the, the Meek Mill uh, documentary that was on um, Amazon. Just tell us if you can just explain to the listeners a little bit about the story and and then how you got into it um, and how you solved it. It would be great, and then we can get into some more questions about it. Sure. So Meek had been arrested in January of 2007 on gun and drug charges and spent some time in prison, and then was also sentenced to 10 years of probation. So that basically meant that he was on some version of surveillance. Um, from the Philadelphia courts in terms of where he could go and who he could interact with, what tour dates he could take and the like. And in in November of 2017, he was found to have um, violated his probation by popping a wheelie, among other things, during a video shoot, which was technically a moving violation. And the judge put him in prison for two to four years on that. And it really shocked us because, and I say us, um, and I think us should um, encompass all of America because what, what, what we were seeing here was the long arm and reach of the injustices of the criminal justice system, um, which is an issue that we got very deeply into as we did this investigation. But no one could understand why the judge had been so cruel, and there had been rumors swirling that she um, – had some kind of conflict of interest with Meek or had some special fascination with him um, and therefore made this decision, used her power improperly to imprison him. So our first assignment was um, to look into the judge herself. And our client was a mixture of different of Meek's advocates, Rock Nation, his management company, which is run, of course, by Jay-Z, Michael Rubin, the owner of the 76ers, as well as a, a host of um, criminal justice reform organizations, and we were ultimately working through Meek's lawyers who were trying to figure out what was going on here. And without making the story too long, after a few months, although we found fascinating things about the judge's um, own personal litigiousness and conflicts of interest and other issues that really spoke to her credibility, they didn't directly speak to her decision to imprison Meek. And so what we suggested we do is go back and look at the case from the very beginning to see not why Judge Brinkley 
put Meek in prison, but how Meek got here in the first place. Because he had always maintained that the official story is not what came out um, in the trial that led to his conviction. And after about four months of work, one of the things, which I can talk about in detail if you'd like, one of the big things we found was that the original arresting officer had been known to the police department and the DA's office as a corrupt cop and had not disclosed that. So we had a history of stealing from drug dealers, um, pocketing money, um, fabricating evidence, uh, and a number of other things. Uh, and this was huge because it's a version of what's called Brady material, um, which means that the the prosecution failed to turn over information that could benefit the defense. Um, and we were in many ways um, – you know, there was a, a corroboration or a, essentially a verification of what we had found when during our own investigation, the Philadelphia DA's office itself released what it called the do not call list. And this police officer, whose name is Reggie Graham, was on that list. So what that did was is it basically said – so the, we were finding all this evidence about the behavior of this cop. And then the DA's office essentially said – we had known this all along, and we are now mm. releasing this to the world. So if you combine the information we found with the information that the state itself disclosed, it ultimately led to the um, reversal of Meek's conviction. And what was, the, what was the connection with the judge? Well, we don't actually know. I mean, we looked at her history and found that she had been known to be tough with many other defendants, right? So it wasn't just Meek. But she was ultimately investigated by the FBI, right? Well, we don't know that, actually. And that's an example of one of the pieces of information that kind of dripped out. It's possible that she was, but that was not information that we independently found or corroborated. corroborated. Um, There was also allegations swirling that she, you know, had connections to competing record labels and wanted Meek to you know, switch labels or that, you know, she wanted him to record a version of a song just for her. And um, so, you know, these are all kind of information that we found fascinating and worth following, um, but that ultimately did not lead to his, um, to his conviction being overturned. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Hive. So when you're investigating a judge, is that a little nerve-wracking? Like, okay, I might be stepping on a beehive here, or is it just like, okay, this is just the job and this is it just <laughs> happens to be a judge? It's a good question. I mean, I think we often think of judges and prosecutors and police officers as people who have extraordinary authority and the kind of authority that should not be questioned. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that I was, and I am nervous when we investigate people of authority, but at the same time, it's why in some senses we do what we do. And I would encourage others to do the same, whether private investigators or investigative journalists um, or others who understand that government transparency and democracy, not to be too melodramatic, um, rest on understanding that there are cracks in our system. 
and that those cracks need to be filled, first identified and then filled. Mm. Um, you know, the, the Washington Post's tagline, I think, is something like democracy dies in darkness, right? Like if, if we're not out there finding evidence of corrupt judges or corrupt police officers who, again, have more power than any of us, then we are essentially turning ourselves over to some version of of authoritarianism. When you um, when you kind of uh, talk about you talk a lot about being a private investigator, and you talk about uh, journalists who are investigators. One thing that I have found is is that it seems like you PIs have abilities to go deeper than most journalists do. Journalists get things because sources give them to them, but PIs have this ability to kind of to and to to just go places that 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 uh, that most journalists can't, and and use tactics that that most journalists you know aren't able to. Like there's um uh, there's databases you guys can go through uh, to do background checks. There's all these different things. Why is it that um, and you've you've said in previous interviews that, that I, I've read that that if you were to go back to being a journalist today, you would be a, a way better investigative journalist because you have done the work that you've done as an as a, a private investigator. Why is it that that we don't kind of send our investigative journalists to you know PI school or that we don't actually team up with them more? I mean, you've done it with some of these cases you've done for documentaries, but mm-hmm. but you know, I'm sure the New York Times isn't calling you up saying. Hey, we're doing a, a big story for the Metro Desk. Can you come, you know, help us find information on X? Right. So, why do those things not not kind of come together? Well, I mean, I have the benefit of having worked in both fields, and I think most journalists um, are self starters, and they are, you know, they have ambition kind of built into their DNA. Um, and I'm going to separate, by the way, journalists from investigative journalists because I think some yeah. people think that all journalism journalism is investigative. I, I would disagree with that because, you know, investigative journalists are often looking, as we are, for hidden information um, that reveals something larger about a fraud or, or a corrupt act, for example. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's true that we have many tools that investigative journalists don't. We do have access to certain databases that are granted to law enforcement officers, licensed private investigators, and the like, Um but more than anything, we just have obsession and passion to do the work. Um, and I want to demystify it a little bit that we have extraordinary tools that other people don't. And the reason I say that is that I think our field gets a bad rap often because the media often covers the bad acts of people in my industry. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking of stories about firms like the Psy Group or Black Cube um, which well, are, tell us about those. Well, Black Cube is a firm that um, is made up of largely of Israeli and former Israeli intelligence operatives, and they became most famous when it was revealed that they were hired by Harvey Weinstein um, to, you know, dig up dirt on on his accusers. And um, it was not just that that they had been hired to do that, but it was the tactics that it turned out that they were using. Um, that were shocking, even to people in my mm. field. I mean, um, they have not been put on trial for this, although agents or, or um, employees of Black Cube have been arrested in other countries. Um, but in the U.S., they were ac- alleged to have created fake identities, lied to witnesses, kind of using many of the tools of the clandestine services to get information by any means necessary. And I think that the the reason that that upsets so many of us in the industry is that it gives the impression that that's what we're doing, that we're that we're essentially spies for hire. And although we are investigative work, I would separate from spying, obviously, because spying is what's done by governments, not by people, yeah. um, by by private citizens. That is. So that's a long way of answering your question about you know what we're seen to do by the public and how we do it. If so, if I wanted to become a PI, do I have to go? Do I have to go to school for it? Do I have? Is, isn't it different in different states as as far as like what you have to do to be uh, to be able to call yourself a private investigator and so on? It is every state regulates the industry differently, and some of those regulations are pretty thin, and you have to just basically pass a test and ensure that you have a few years of relevant experience. And others, there's there's tr- there's training you have to 
testify before a body. It really varies. Um, mm. Some states have zero regulations and others you actually are, are regulated in each county. If it were up to me, you'd get a, a kind of federal license. I'd love to put together a lobbying body that um, allowed you to to work wherever. I mean, for example, we we are licensed in New York and New Jersey, among many other states. But if I were not licensed in New Jersey, which is about two miles from my house in Brooklyn, I couldn't go across the Hudson River to do an interview with somebody in Hoboken without a license. So I'd have to either hire somebody there or or essentially rent their license so that I could go along with them. Um, but back to your question about what do you need to become a private investigator, my answer to that question is not a diploma or a degree or, or a certificate that says that, but relevant experience. And by that I mean mm. data scientists um, are incredibly valuable in our industry, um, investigative journalists, forensic accountants, um, you know, intelligence Operatives, you know, are not all the ones that get the bad rap of the black cube narratives. Um, these are people who know how to find information. Former law enforcement officers, detectives. Uh, we have a former prosecutor on our staff who is a fantastic investigator. Um, and, you know, he does not have the tools he used to have, guns and badges and subpoena power. But that, in many ways, makes us as private investigators almost by definition more creative we have to come up with ways of finding information that we can't get by subpoenaing the bank records of a company for example so i, I want to jump to the to the adnan syed case so you were um a major part of the documentary uh the recent documentary on hbo the case against uh adnan syed and you kind of I mean, this was like gumshoe, like man on the street going to the scene of the crime, to, mm -hmm. the, to the shipyard, you name it. Um, how did you get involved in the project? And, and what did you discover as you were, what was the tactic you decided to, to take? And, and I'd also love to hear a little bit about uh, one of the things that's so fascinating about this case is you have, you know, the serial podcast, I think it's what, 240 million people have listened to it. You have Reddit threads that are that think they know they've solved every part of the case you have every single person in the world who has an opinion on it who has listened to the thing or not i have my own opinion which i will share at the end of this uh and i'm just kind of curious how first of all how you ended up getting involved in it but but what your thoughts were about joining a case like this that has been kind of combed over so many times from so many different angles. Mm -hmm. So we were hired by the director, Amy Berg, who knows Barry Sheck, the co-founder of The Innocence Project. And we had been a longtime um, investigative team that was hired by The Innocence Project. So we knew Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld and others. And Barry recommended us to Amy because she said that I'm going to make this film that picks up where Serial left off, but I'm not a private eye, and I would like to hire a real private investigative team to help me. So it was through that introduction that we got involved in the case, and it was in many ways a unique experience, not only because it was, as you said, um, such well-tread territory, and, and at that point, obviously a global phenomenon. Um, but we were not hired by a lawyer in that case. So we were not working for Adnan's defense team as we normally are. And by normally are, I mean hired by lawyers who are representing a client that has some kind of legal dispute. So w once we were hired, we had a number of conversations about where to begin because so much of it had been – I think Sarah Koenig did a fantastic job. And to her credit, she confesses, I think, at the very beginning of episode one that she was not – uh, an investigative reporter and had not been a private detective and so, you know, did not have the professional experience to do this. But I think she knew that simply telling the story and making herself a character in that story would make it a compelling narrative. Yeah. Um, and since we're all obsessed with, you know, true crime dramas, she's obviously credited and duly so with 
you know, kind of recreating that. Oh yeah, she's she's yeah created an entire new genre of it for podcasts. Yeah, and, for the podcast and community, and, and we admire what she did. And and by the way, we did not work with her at all. She was not part of this. I think she'd probably had had non fatigue by that point. Um, oh yeah, I think I think she I think she had a non fatigue by the by episode two. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So you know, we immediately we knew that this was something we wanted to be involved with because we knew that HBO was going to air this. So it was an opportunity for us to do what we do best and and you know get some visibility out of it the problem we had was that we didn't know exactly how to approach it but having worked with organizations like the innocence project we had lots of ideas about how we would approach a criminal defense case and more broadly uh, or, or I, I suppose i should say more specifically a case that might be an exoneration we knew that there were hallmarks of wrongful convictions police misconduct prosecutorial misconduct a false confession, eyewitness misidentification, junk science, and, and all of these things. And, and, and Sarah Koenig had raised um, lots of questions about, um, you know, misconduct like within, within the government when it came to approaching Adnan's case. But she also raised a lot of good questions that were ultimately unanswered about, um, you know, what, what really happened that day and when did it happen? And in many ways, we picked up on on where she left off. Um, and so what we decided to do was not only to go out and interview, we might have spoken to hundreds of people in the case, um, people who knew Hay, and people who knew Adnan, um, and trying um, Were you to, able to talk to her family, or are they still not talked to anyone? They did not speak to us, and, and it was very important. Not only did we reach out to them, but the filmmakers reached out to them multiple times because it was important to Amy Berg, the director, that this film, you know, so much attention had been put on Adnan's role that this film honor Hay as the victim. And I think yeah. that comes across very clearly in the first episode um, where where there's a lot of focus on who she was. Um, and so we were very sensitive to that. And, and to go back to one of your questions about tactics is, you know, when we went out into the world and, and tracked down former police officers who worked on the case or um, people who had known both Adnan and Hay, our approach to them was very open and very um, transparent. We told them we were private investigators. We had been hired by a documentary film team to try to unearth what really happened that day since the serial podcast, for all its value, had not answered that question. And most people were very open to that. Um, they didn't. They, they sensed that we were credible or we were certainly doing everything we could to show our credibility. Um, and what we ultimately found, I think, was that the the state's case about what happened to Hay on the day that she disappeared is likely not a reflection of reality um, in that they claimed that she disappeared and likely was killed at a certain time of day in a certain place um, and that we found that it's possible that she died many hours later um, and one of the re ways we did that was we found some uh, medical examiners, who, including one who appears in the film, who looked at all of the evidence for us. So in that sense, we were recreating the case and bringing in other experts, giving us their opinion. This medical examiner, who is from Atlanta, Georgia, told us there were a number of um, impressions on Hayes' body and other evidence that she could see that made it clear to her that she died, likely died, many hours later than the police argued that, and the prosecutors argued that she did. And not to belabor this point, but that might seem like a technicality, but let's assume that that's true. If that, if that is true, then that, what that means is that the police and the prosecutors, just for the sake of argument, even if they got the right guy, then they put together a case with false evidence. But why would they have done that? Well, I can't answer well, wh that question. Why, why, the, why, why change the timing, though? Because it makes more sense because of where Adnand and Jay, his, his perhaps, partner, in, alleged partner in crime, were? Or? I mean, those are questions we wanted to ask the prosecutors and the detectives themselves, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't speak to us. Um, I mean, the answer might be outright corruption. I mean, some of the police officers who were involved in the investigation— of Adnan Syed have 
have turned out to have been involved in other cases where there was outright corruption, which have led to the exonerations of other people in Baltimore. Um, it could be sloppiness. It could be um, that Baltimore in the late 90s, and this is not a, a new idea I'm about to put forward, was a, a very violent place where police officers and prosecutors were under-resourced and overworked, um, and they felt they had their guy, and they brought forth the evidence they thought was correct and turned out that it that it wasn't. I mean, one of the biggest pieces of evidence that we did not find that was very convincing was that the cell phone records that were used by the prosecution to corroborate the location of Adnan's phone were later found to have been unreliable. So you essentially have two pieces of evidence. You have Jay testifying and then you have the cell phone records. So if you remove the cell phone records, all you basically have is the testimony of one witness. And that, by the way, is another example of a hallmark of a wrongful conviction when prosecution, the prosecution is relying on one person who may have ulterior motives for testifying. So two questions here. So the first one is, why do you think that this case captured so many, so many people's attention? It's There are thousands and thousands of cases in the innocent projects that in this innocence project that are uh, examples of wrongful convictions of, of police officers you know planting evidence of of someone who testified to get a deal uh, of just you know DNA tests that haven't been done you name it um, but this case for whatever reason is is the one that we all kind of talk about and obsess about and I have my viewpoints on it and you have your viewpoints mm-hmm. on it and we could walk down the street and someone else will have theirs mm-hmm. what is it that you think that is so captivating about this specific case well I think it's a confluence of forces that not only include the case itself but include the nature of podcasting the storytelling of Sarah Koenig um, the the fascination with true crime, um, kind of all coming together, you know, at the, at the perfect point um, to create this spark. Um, but the case itself was always fascinating because when you think about it, and I'll compare this to Meek Mill's case, when you think about the, the Adnan Sayed case, the problem we have is that there's really not much evidence at all, right? I mean, there's mm. there's no real DNA. There was some DNA that was later tested that essentially uh, did not tie t- to Adnan, and that came out in the film. Um, there there were no witnesses other than Jay, um, who was complicit by his own admission in burying the body. Um, there was no other technological evidence. There, so it's one of these cases where it, it's 20 years old now, and we don't really know what to make of it. The other thing was I think that the case, the characters um, – Involved. I mean, we're, we're, we're such a fascinating group. I mean, you have a young um, Korean-American woman. You have um, Adnan, who was American, by the way, and, and the prosecutors would use inaccurate facts to try to cast him as this immigrant when, in fact, he's from here. Um, you know, he came out of the, um, the Muslim community. You have um, Baltimore in the 1990s, and Baltimore has now become, unfortunately, synonymous with... Um, you know, high crime rates and all of the issues that we focus on as Americans with respect to criminal justice and and our system being broken. Um, So I I think in that sense, it all converged in a fascinating narrative about high school, criminal justice, immigration, murder, whodunit, and, and a new medium of podcasting all thrown into the pot and stirred up into the, into the perfect formula. Do you, when you first set out to start investigating that specific case, did you go and look at all the Reddit threads and all the conspiracy theories and and so on that were out there to see if there was any that actually made any sense? And were there any, or or were they just kind of all all over the place? Yeah, and in fact, we followed so many of those um, Reddit subreddits and 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 people who were active on Twitter um, that what we decided to do was instead of ignoring them, is to use them. Because there are so many amateur investigators who did fantastic work. Um, and I'll give you one example that um, appears in the film. There, um, there were impressions on Hay's body that we had been examining for years. 
um, near her collarbone that seemed to be a kind of perfect symmetrical shape of two diamonds that were maybe two, two and a half inches long um, that we suspect had come about as a result of her body being face down and the result of lividity, which is when the, the blood in the in your body settles as a result of gravity. Um, and no one had been able to figure out what these were. And they seemed to us a a path worth following. And somebody on, on Twitter posted an idea that it could have been as the result of um, what was called a, a concrete shoe. It's a piece that fits onto a, a grinding uh, piece of machinery that um, people who work in cement use. And it turns out that the man who found the body, um, Alonzo Sellers, worked in that industry. So, you know, one theory goes that he had more to do with it than he's let on. Uh, and her body was somewhere else that police and prosecutors either did not know or did not disclose um, for a longer period of time, which leads us to speculate that perhaps her body was buried six or eight hours after they claim that it was if that all makes sense. And yeah, my, my point there is that that's, a, that's a, a fascinating thread that we pulled that we didn't originate ourselves, that, that we decided to pick up on that somebody else had found. And by the way, this is an example of what is called a crowd funding or crowdsourcing an investigation, which is something that we'd like to do much more often because often we're hired by one lawyer who has one client and we have to keep all of our evidence and all of our tactics quiet because they're wrapped in the confidentiality and privilege provisions of of the legal proceeding that we're working within, which makes perfect sense, as they should. But imagine we had, in every case, we had 500,000 detectives willing to help us. It would be, it'd be phenomenal. We could crack a lot more yeah. cases. Although the 500,000 detectives, that uh, 499,000 of which probably have the most... Uh, ludicrous ideas of what happened, but still. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's an example of where we would not, we would try not to pay attention to the people's opinions and look for postings where people would present evidence by which we mean an actual document or a photograph or a quote from somebody credible and follow that. And not just conspiracy theories because, you know, that's, that's where you get into trouble. I mean, look at you know, and I, I know you've done a, a podcast about this, about Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, when you when we sit around our dinner tables and we talk about Epstein, what we're really talking about is conspiracy theories, and mm. and that's that's a hard way. Do in. you believe? But do you believe? Don't you've got to believe some conspiracy theories are true. I mean, there's there was a there was a great article in the Times right after Jeffrey Epstein um, committed suicide or allegedly committed suicide, or however you, however you want to say it, and. Uh, and it was pointing out, like, you know, sure, the conspiracy theories might seem a little nutty, but, like, some conspiracy theories end up being true. Do you kind of look at at, at some and think, as an investigator, like, oh, well, there's actually some plausibility in that, or do they all seem a little kooky? I think there's always some plausibility, and, and, um, and I say that because I'm in the business of finding information that is often shocking to me in terms of whether it's the corrupt acts of a government official or – the fraudulent behavior of a Wall Street trader or, or, or manslaughter or murder, you know, just horrific behavior by, by people who live among us. Um, mm -hmm. Having said that, my point in bringing up the conspiracy theories is that to do an honest and credible investigation, you shouldn't begin with the conspiracy theories because then what you do is you start cherry-picking information to build around your theory as opposed to finding evidence and amassing that evidence, which may ultimately result in your discovery that the conspiracy theory, in fact, is f is true and not just a conspiracy theory. All right. So I have a question. Before you started the investigation of the Syed case and after, did your viewpoint, did you have a different viewpoint on who you think did it or if he did it or was involved in it or anything and did it change? So I never had an opinion on on whether he was guilty or not. Um, I had, you know, so I wavered. Um, and the reason I, I say that is that I have spent 15 years as a private investigator working for um, lawyers, many of whom are criminal defense lawyers, who have um, often credible reasons to believe that their clients are innocent, but they don't have any proof of it. 
uh, all they have is their client's word. So I am brought in and my team is brought in to try to find that evidence. So what I decided to do and what we decided to do was um, investigate it like any other criminal defense case. And I know this is not the answer you're looking for, Nick, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Is um, is to is to it's try okay. to be objective. It's, okay. it's to yeah. try to be objective, and and I'll tell you, you know, look, if if you watch Amy Berg's film, it's a fantastic film, but it has a point of view, right? I mean, it, it's told from the perspective of Adnan and Adnan's family, um, and they're not ashamed to state that they believe that th- there is more to the story than what was brought forward, and that was our assignment, right? I mean, if if I simply believed that Adnan was guilty and that there was no more to the story, it wouldn't have made sense for me to be involved in the case because that would mean that I'm just agreeing with the, with the cops yeah. and, and with the prosecutors. Having said that, I will tell you that one of the early conversations we had with the producers went like this. We said, we agreed to take this case on the condition that no matter what we find, whether it further implicates Adnan or exonerates him, you bring that story to life. And they agreed, and that made us yeah. very comfortable, and it also put us in a fascinating new opportunity to um, find information that would, you know, play to, as you've stated, one of the most fascinating true crime stories of a generation. See, here's my theory. I'm not. I I totally get that it's you know there's a million different things i i do believe that the cops cut corners is not a question i don't know why but the problem i always had with this case was that and maybe maybe he has he has asked this question it just never came out but when you listen to the first 10 hours of serial and you know he's on the phone with um with sarah caning and they're talking constantly week after week after week for a year there isn't one moment when he says, wait, you've been investigating this for a year. Who do you think did it? And the fact that he never asked that question to me was was kind of a little bit of a red flag as to, mm-hmm. do I think that he did it all by himself? Probably not. Do I think that, I don't even know if he did it, but he I, do I think he was there? Probably. He had something to do with it because to me, the fact that he never once asked the question of, if I'm sitting in jail right now for, you know, killing uh someone or something or whatever the all i would be thinking about was who did it because then if we find out who did it then i can get out mm-hmm. and that was that was my big thing that i always kind of uh that always stuck in my mind well, but that's, who knows I don't that's know. not necessarily true i mean let's take an exoneration case when we work for lawyers who are trying to prove that their client is innocent who really did it is rarely our assignment to figure out and i'll tell you why because um, although that certainly helps, um, proving police misconduct that evidence was falsified, for example, doesn't point to another suspect, but it points to the innocence of our client. Hmm. So, and I just want to draw that distinction a little bit um, and then bring it back to the Adnan case. Um, you know, to your point about whether he asked her that, maybe he did and she edited it out, right? Like, we don't, we don't really know. She... As you do, she, you know, aired what what she wanted to tell a good story. So that's why we kind of have to be like obsessively faithful to the evidence because if we're just going on our hunches, yeah. that's not going to hold up. I mean, look, that's our true. experience is is collecting evidence for legal proceedings where you need evidence. You can't use hearsay. You can't use rumors. You can chase those, but you can't use them effectively because people people's lives are at play here. Let's just say, for example, that Adnan is responsible for Hayes' death, but there was an as-yet-identified, unidentified third party who helped him, right? So half the world might say, well, then he should be in jail. The other half of the world might say, well, the police didn't get the full story and they didn't tell what really happened, and so we can't really trust our criminal justice system because they are putting people in prison using evidence that is not credible. So, okay, so I have a, a last couple of questions for you, um, and, and then we'll let you go. The, the, the first one is, do you, as an investigator, sometimes uh, read the newspaper or, or go online or whatever it is and, um, and see cases and stories uh, 
uh, that you you want to get involved with and kind of reach out or think or or even get involved with like if you're like reading a story about something that Trump has done with his taxes or or something related to mm-hmm. some sort of injustice uh, do you ever either reach out or think about kind of just like you know sitting down at your computer and, and doing a little kind of a little research uh, on your own we do and and uh, when when we reach out though we don't reach out to the media, we often reach out to a party that's described or um, written about in the media. So I'll give you an example. Um, I'm making this up, but if it comes out that there'd been some um, huge fraud within a within a company on Wall Street and no one really knows what was going on, um, we might reach out to that company's general counsel's office and offer our services because we know how to find that kind of information. Um, but but we don't independently contact journalists to ask them um, if we can help them. Having said that, um, there are situations where our clients have asked us to share what we've found with journalists. I think the Meek case is the best example. When we found that the arresting officer of Meek was a corrupt cop, our client realized that this was not just a legal battle for Meek, but it was a PR battle and that we were working in the space of criminal justice reform more broadly in addition just to Meek's case. And so they gave us the permission to talk to Rolling Stone and to go on Lester Holt's show and to um, speak to many other uh, journalists about what we'd found because they wanted the word to get out. Yeah. All right. So if you could pick one case in history, you know, like uh, anything, it literally could be anything that you could investigate, uh, what would it be? Would it be like Jimmy Hoffa? Would it what would be the one thing that you would that you would go after that you uh, th- think about a lot? And does it have to be an unresolved case? Uh, Something that's still a no, mystery. No, it doesn't have to be unresolved. Uh, no, it does No, you could you could go for a resolved one. I mean, the cases that most appeal to us and our firm are those that include, you know, a combination of forces that led to you know, the resignation of Richard Nixon, right? I mean, think about these guys, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, what they were doing, using old school investigative tactics um, to get the truth. Um, And that has had repercussions for generations. And that would mean not only finding and exposing fraudulent behavior, but behavior that goes, you know, into the reaches of our government, where presumably the most trusted members of our society are supposed to work and reside. Um, so, you know, perhaps it's Watergate, um, is one answer, but the next time you have me back, I'll have a better answer prepared. (laughs) (laughs) I think I would want to know, I would want to go, I mean, I know that, I know that every rock has been turned over and, and returned over and reexamined, but I still, I still kind of want to know who was behind JFK. I I don't, it does, it doesn't all add up to me, but that's a good example. What do I know? You you watch, you know, Oliver Stone's film, JFK, and yeah. Talk about a good film, right? Because, but it's all conspiracy theories. That's what makes it a good film. Um, mm-hmm. if, if he were just to simply follow exactly what we knew to be true, it would be unwatchable. The movie. <laughs> no, completely. Yeah. No, it's. Uh, but it. But it, it definitely lodges in your head and makes you question everything. Tyler, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been truly fascinating. I uh, really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks to my guest today, Tyler Maroney. If you enjoyed this conversation, and I'm sure you did because it was truly fascinating and eye-opening for me, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a nice review while you're there, or don't even bother leaving a review at all. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and thank you to my sponsor this week, BMW. Please support them the same way you support this podcast by going to bmwusa.com slash innovation. I will see you all next week. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. 
Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon.